good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that you are encouraged by the body of Christ here at, here at our church. I also pray that you are encouraged by the worship, by the worship of our Lord. Here at uh, GBC, we believe that music plays a critical or a crucial role in supporting the preaching of the Word of God. We believe also that each aspect of our service, our gathering, is an act of worship. That includes the preparation for the service. There's a lot that goes into uh, the weekly service, and even down to the announcements, I, we believe to be part of this worship of the Lord. Over the past few weeks, as uh, we began preaching, I tried to, have tried to highlight our philosophy of ministry pillars to remind you of why we exist as a church. Today, I want to address the, the last two pillars specifically. We are committed at Grace Bible Church to equipping the saints. As I said last week, we equipped the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I would argue that making disciples is the primary focus of the ministry. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus commanded us to make disciples of the nations. Now, I would argue that there are two aspects to this command. First, that we are to make disciples. In other words, we are to go out and evangelize. Said another way, we are to preach the gospel to the lost. And we believe that the gospel must be preached to make disciples. We have to go out and actually speak to unbelievers so that they would become followers of Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit does that transforming work as the gospel is received by the hearer. But we're also, the second aspect of making disciples is to teach Jesus' disciples to obey his commands. This is the work of equip, equipping the saints. Paul captures that idea in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And we do this by using the word of God, which, by the way, is inspired by God, and is profitable, according to 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, profitable for teaching, <coughs> for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, as we survey the cultural landscape, our world clearly needs to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it is clear. In John 4:35, Jesus told his disciples that the field is white for harvest. I believe that we may be coming into a time where many come to know Christ, a great harvest, if you will. And, and we should recognize that our Lord has a compassion for the lost. In Luke 15, 8 through 10, Jesus says that there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Church, we just need more workers. We just need more workers. We need more men and women who are willing to sacrifice their lives to reach a lost and dying world with the message of the gospel. We need missionaries. We need people at home who are uh, willing to hold the rope, if you will. We need folks who are willing to take up their cross, giving up their comfortable lives so that the gospel may go out to those who need to hear it. Over this past month, We've been studying the, the Old Testament book of Jonah. Today, we will look at Jonah 3, where this prophet from Israel finally obeys the Lord and goes to Nineveh. Now, I'm not advocating that, that you mimic Jonah's behavior, 
He stupidly tried to thwart God's plan at every turn. That is, until he found himself in a, if you will, a tuna taxi back to dry land. I guess you might call that a tuna straitjacket because Jonah was straight up crazy to think that, think that he could run from God. But having said that, we know that Jonah is not at center stage of this drama. You see, throughout this story, we continually find that Yahweh, the Lord God, is the hero. Yahweh's compassion towards sinners is front and center, even sinners like Jonah and the Israelites, even sinners like the king of Nineveh and the Ninevites. By the way, Scripture tells us and history affirms that the Ninevites were wicked, wicked people. Believe me, God's act of compassion on these people absolutely boggles the mind. Truly, Jonah's behavior shouldn't surprise us. This reminds me of John 4. I just mentioned it, where, the, where Jesus said the, the, the harvest is white for, har, for harvest. The Israelites absolutely loathed the Samaritans, yet it was the Samaritans who Jesus described as white for harvest. That was shocking to his disciples. Truly, I wonder who we regard as Samaritans or Ninevites of our day. Are there folks who we would argue that God shouldn't show compassion toward? God shouldn't have compassion toward? And I think if we're honest, we would say yes. We do have that attitude many times. Today, we're going to see in Jonah chapter 3, we're going to see just how far God's compassion extends to those who humbly repent before Him. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning for your compassion towards sinners like us. May we see that clearly displayed in Jonah chapter 3. In Christ's name, amen. As I said earlier, we have been studying the Old Testament book of Jonah and considering its profound connections to the rest of Scripture. We have looked at the account of Jonah as a play, if you will, acted out before our eyes. In the prologue of this play, we looked at Matthew chapter 12. And in that chapter, Jesus scolded the Pharisees for missing the heart of the law. You see, they were enforcers of the law, but they missed God's heart displayed in the law. They didn't recognize that love for God and love for neighbor summed up the law. Therefore, they condemned the innocent. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. They also attributed Jesus' miracles to the work of Satan, and in doing so, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, which is the unpardonable sin. They brazenly asked for another sign for him, from him when he had shown them clearly who he was by his signs, by his miracles, and by his teaching, which had authority, not like their scribes and Pharisees. To which he responded when they asked for a, a further sign, he responded that he would give them or they would be given the sign of Jonah. That's Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Now with that exchange... Between Jesus and and these Jewish leaders, Jesus verified the truthfulness of the story of Jonah. And in doing so, he gives us a foreshadow of the ending of Jonah and the birth of the church. Now, after the prologue, we saw the opening act. 
Uh, we saw the, the prophet Jonah. He was a, a silly prophet from the northern kingdom of, of Israel. I say he was silly because he was going against or trying to thwart God's will. He was sent to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrians, who were the sworn enemy of Israel. Now, it was shocking to Jonah that God would send him to these people who were known by their wickedness, wickedness that had even risen to, to God himself or to heaven, it says. It was especially galling to, to Jonah that God would show compassion toward these evil people. This was especially true considering God's upcoming judgment of Israel, a judgment that would be meted out, by the way, by the Assyrians. Now, therefore, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Jonah would try to avoid God's command. It, it shouldn't surprise us. Any reasonable prophet would know that fleeing from God's presence was, a, presence was a fool's errand, but it shouldn't surprise us that he would want to do so. Nonetheless, we looked at Acts chapter 1, where Jonah foolishly decides to disobey God's clear directive. In Act, chapter, Act 1, which is Jonah 1, Jonah flees God doing the opposite of everything God said to do. When God said to rise up, uh, Jonah went down. He went, he went the opposite direction of Jonah, what, what God had told him to do. He did everything opposite of God's command. But in doing so, God uses Jonah's actions for his own glory. He Jonah runs from God by going to Joppa to sail away, sail away to Tarshish. And as he does so, as I said earlier, he spirals downward. At the end of Jonah 1, he has spiraled, spiraled downward to the bottom of the sea. He also found himself in what we will call a near-death experience at the door of Sheol. That brings us to Acts chapter 2, or Act 2, that is, not Acts 2. Act 2, although there is a connection to Acts that we'll get to later in the series, but in Act 2, a great fish, Yahweh prepares this great fish, and, and he, in Act 2, he shows mercy on Jonah by ar arranging for this great fish to save him. Look at your text in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. The, Jonah, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of that fish for three days and three nights. In Jonah 2, 1, or Jonah 2, 1 says that Jonah prayed while he was inside that fish. And in Jonah 2, 2, uh, Jonah 2, that is, records Jonah's prayers, prayer while he languished in the belly of the fish. In this prayer of thanksgiving, Jonah thanks God for saving him from certain death. It is here, as he endures this, what, was, what must be a putrid environment inside the fish's digestive tract, that Jonah prays an incredibly profound prayer. We heard that last week. Now, before we review the prayer, I want to make sure we understand the structure of the text. I tried to say this last week, but I, I need to be clearer in how this text is structured because I think it helps us understand what's going on in Jonah chapter 2. In Jonah 1, Jonah encountered, encountered a great storm and was thrown overboard by the sailors. Presumably, he spent some time in the waters, but Jonah 1 doesn't record that period of time. Jonah 1.15 says that the sailors tossed Jonah over. 1.16 says they prayed to Yahweh. And 1.17, Yahweh sends the blue whale taxi. I've thrown in three or four jokes and nobody's laughing. Maybe I'm not giving you time. That's probably what it is. But what's missing here? What's missing? The, the account of Jonah's time in the water before the fish picked him up. Because Jonah 2 comes after Jonah 1.17, 1, 
We may assume that those events occur chronologically after as well, but we forget that Jonah is thanking, in chapter 2, Jonah is thanking God for something that happened in the past. And I can prove that to you by looking at Jonah 2.2. Notice the verb tenses in Jonah 2.2. Everything is in the past tense. He, and he said, so he, and he prayed, I called out, in my, out of my distress, and he answered me. I cried for help from the death of Sheol, you heard my voice. So there's a, there's a past, the past tense which says that it's something is happening prior to his time in the fish. And Jonah 2, 3 through 6 clearly describes what happened while he was in the waters. So Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving is a prayer of thanksgiving, that is, for, for saving, thanksgiving to God, for saving him by means of the great fish. So it's the great fish that saves him from death. And then Jonah prays to God from the belly of the fish. And it's from this point of view that Jonah finally shows some sign of repentance. Now Jonah modeled his prayer on the prayers of thanksgiving from the Psalms. The the prayers of thanksgiving generally have four parts. An introduction, a personal crisis, a recount of God's rescue, and a final vow of praise. Now Jonah summarizes the, the predicament in Jonah 2.2, which we just read. I won't read it again. Now, in Jonah 2, 3 through 6, he tells what that crisis was. Uh, he begins to describe what happened to him, his personal crisis, if you will, at the bottom of the sea. It says that God cast him in the deep, and he gives graphic detail of the water encompassing him to the point of death, he even had seaweed from the bottom of the sea wrapped around his head. That's, that's described again in Jonah 2, 3, 3 through 6. Now, in Jonah 6, 2, 6 through 8, we see God, Jonah's recount of God's rescue. So he's almost dead. He's not quite there yet, but he's almost dead. And Jonah says that God heard his cry and rescued him from certain death. And therefore, Yahweh brought him up from the bottom of the pit. That's, again, Jonah 2, 6 through 8. Jonah recognized that he must obey God. Jonah recognized in those verses that he must obey God by going and preaching to Nineveh, yet he still didn't like it. He still didn't think it was the right thing to do. But he did it because God had finally convinced him. Now look at Jonah 2, 9. You see Jonah's final vow of praise. And in that vow of praise, we see Jonah making the most what I would say the most profound statement of the text, that Jonah had graphically come to understand that salvation truly is from the Lord. He, graphically meaning that he had survived because of God's hand in sending the fish to save him. Therefore, he says Yahweh is the author of salvation. And Jonah understood this truth because he was so near to death and, and from his perspective, he was in danger of a spiritual separation from the Lord. And it was at that moment, that moment of realization that Jonah cried out. He cried out. And Jonah, or and then Yahweh then pronounces a command to the great fish. Uh, he says he commanded the fish in Jonah 2.10 and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And this is how the section ends. ends. It ends really where it started, God commanding the fish. One in, in Early in chapter 2, he commanded the fish to go pick up Jonah, if you will, and just like we would go, uh, as I said last week, as we would dial an Uber ride or a taxi ride, he commanded the fish to do so. Jonah 2 ends with him commanding the fish to vomit 
uh, Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, as this amazing drama in Jonah has unfolded, we have seen, as we've said, the prologue, the opening act, and we've also seen Act 1 and Act 2. Today, we will see Act 3, a great compassion or a great repentance. Let me read Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word, of the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let, it, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men, let men of God earnestly that... Call on God, that is, earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which was in his hands, which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. He did not do it. So, Jonah has been vomited up by the great fish and is now back on dry land. Now, God probably had the fish deposit him onto the beach near Joppa. Then Yahweh repeats his command to Jonah. That's Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, look at Jonah 3, 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, you may notice that this text is incredibly similar to Jonah 1.1. Notice that in Jonah 1.1 and in Jonah 3.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, I would argue, again, I said this in Jonah 1.1, that this is the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Logos, the, the Lord Jesus. Now, in 3.1, the text says he came a second time. Now, in this case, God gives Jonah a second chance. Now, at this point, I, I could say that God is the God of second chances, and that would certainly preach, but that's not what I think is going on here. What we have to recognize is that God is not sitting on his throne wondering what Jonah is going to do. If, if you see nothing else here, and I've said it many times, I've pounded this drum many times, you have to see that God is orchestrating every scene of this drama. Jonah has done exactly what God has decreed that he would do. God has not been surprised by Jonah. God has not reacted to Jonah. Everything that God, or Jonah does, God already knows. Look back at your text in Jonah 3.2. He says, Arise and go to, the, to the Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. 
Again, we see some similarities between 1-2 and 3-2. But I want you to notice that in 1-2, God told Jonah to cry against the great city. Then he gives Jonah the reason why. For their wickedness has come up before me. But in Jonah 3, he says to proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Now, I have argued and would continue to argue that Jonah knew the message from the beginning. Now, I can't say for certain that God gave him the message from the beginning because the text doesn't say that. But I would counter that there's nothing in Jonah 1, 1, and 2 telling us that God didn't give him the full message. Now, either way, whether God gave Jonah the full message or not, I believe that Jonah uh, knew the message from the start of this. I, I believe one simple question proves that he did know. If God had only told Jonah to cry against the city, why would Jonah have run away from God's presence? You see, you see Jonah obviously wanted God to judge these people. He wanted God to judge this, this city. So, and, and, and really, if you think about it, Jonah 1-2 is a message of judgment. So either God told him the full message or he assumed it, but either way, Jonah knew what God intended. He knew that he intended for them to repent. Therefore, he ran because he didn't like the message. But one would think that he had learned his lesson by the time we get to this, to this point in the account, but I don't think he has. And I think I'll be able to show you that in, in a few moments. But as Christians... As Christians, we need to recognize that God is orchestrating everything, every aspect of even our lives, down to the minute details. From our perspective, we, we make real decisions in our lives. Jonah made the decision to run from God's presence. That is absolutely clear. He made the decision to tell the sailors to dump him overboard. He, we should recognize that that none of these decisions that Jonah made to go down and down and down, and none of these decisions to go uh, ever thwart God's will. We see this clearly in the events of Jonah. We, con we conveni conveniently forget, though, that God arranges our lives as well. In the words of Kevin DeYoung, he says, no matter where we are in life, God is not done with us, and we can still play a part in his story. But then he says this, this is Kevin DeYoung, especially when we realize it is his story and not ours, end quote. You see, we should acknowledge the sovereign hand of God is behind everything that occurs. Now, are you sick? I mean, if, you, if you're struggling with sickness, God is using your sickness to make you more like Christ. If you're struggling with money, God has reasons for that. If you're struggling with your children, God uses those situations for His glory. If you feel like God has forgotten you, believe me, He has not. He uses this to your glory, or to His glory, that is. But this doesn't relieve us of our responsibility to steward our own lives. And jo Jonah chose to disobey God. God ordained his disobedience and used it for his glory. Yet Jonah acted according to his nature and was fully responsible for every one of his actions. Now back to the text. Yahweh has repeated his command. Now Jonah responds to Yahweh. Jonah responds to, to Yahweh. Look at Jonah 3.3. 3. Jonah arose, so he's now obeying. He arose and he went to Nineveh, 
according to the word of the Lord. Jonah finally takes a cue from Balaam's donkey and the great fish, both of these animals who were much wiser than their human counterparts. Jonah finally uh, obeys the Lord, so Jonah rightly responds to God's command, and now he's on his way to Nineveh, this great city. Look back at Jonah 3.3. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Now this phrase could simply be a reference to the massive size of the city, or the Hebrew phrase could actually be translated, and I'm not quite sure why they don't translate it this way, uh, a, a great city to God, or a great city which even belongs to God. Uh, that's actually what it says in the text. Matter of fact, the NAS has that in its margins if you have uh, the NASB notes. Ultimately, I believe that, that that the, the author is emphasizing the size and the relative importance of this great city because it was so big and had so many people in it. And so, but as for the actual size, Nineveh was a huge city. It was a huge city. Look at the text in Jonah 3.3. It says that it was a, an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now, I would argue that the free phrase, three days walk, refers to the circumference uh, around the, the city. The ESV and the NET both refer to this distance as the width or the length of the city, but I think that Nineveh was about 60 miles in circumference, which is about 19 to 20 miles across. Now, that dimension would have included the city center along with all of its outlying settlements. <clears throat> now, that's not unlike modern cities. Uh, matter of fact, I heard earlier, we talked said earlier that, that Justin may be going to Atlanta. And when we refer to Atlanta, we refer to many times the city, the main city, but we also include in our minds many times the suburbs as we reference the city by name. It's Atlanta, but it includes all those cities like Woodstock and other cities around, around the town that have grown into the main city. So, that's, I think, when he refers to Nineveh and the size of Nineveh, I think that's what he's referring to is the, the outlying areas as well. But let's not, just, let's not deceive ourselves. The main city of Nineveh was massive itself. The city wall was about seven and a half miles long and up to 148 feet wide. The walls had 15 great gates. The Kalsar River, or Kalsar River, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, flowed through the center of the, of the city, joining the Tigris on the western side. Archaeology shows that the total area include, in, enclosed, that is, by the city wall comprised of about 1,800 acres. Now, they've also found an elaborate system of 18 canals which brought water from the surrounding hills to Nineveh. They even found a, several section of a, sections of a magnificently constructed aqueduct that was up to 25 miles away. I mean, this was a massive city. Now, history tells us that around 612 B.C., a little over a century after Jonah's time, the Babylonians destroyed Nineveh. This was in accord with Nahum's prophecy in Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I won't read that, but you can go and check that out yourself. Now, look back at your text in Jonah 3, 4. It says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. Now, I believe that this refers to the breadth or the diameter of the city. So, the circumference is a three days walk, 
then the diameter is approximately a one-day walk. Now, for you math guys out there, since the diameter of a circle is about one-third the circumference, 3.14 is pi, right? Considering that, I would argue that Jonah started on one side of the city and walked through the middle of the city, which would have included the walled portion of the city. And as he was walking, he cried out, according to the text, look back at verse 4, and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, even in the English text, you should see that there's something peculiar about Jonah's statement. In that statement, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In that statement, there is no call to action. He just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Hebrew text says, if you translate it uh, in the Hebrew text, it says, up until 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In other words, you would expect, I would expect, I hope you would expect a call to do something. We expect an action verb, an imperative, a command. That call to action could be a, a, a command or a warning to leave the city or something else, but we expect some sort of call to action. That would sound like, pack your bags, you got 40 days before the city's destroyed. But he just says, you have 40 days. You see, what, you see what's missing? So if there's no call to action, then why warn them unless it's simply to give them information that they are doomed? In that case, the warning implies that there's nothing that can be done. Now, if that were God's message then Jonah got it right. But I don't think that's God's full message. In other words, I would argue that Jonah knew the full message and he didn't like it. He knew that, and if you look at chapter 4, you'll see this, he knew that the full message was repent for up until 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The point is, the point is, is that there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's an action verb here that Jonah doesn't give. In effect, Jonah was trying to short-circuit God's call for repentance. So Jonah has responded to Yahweh. He's clearly responded to Yahweh. He's gone to Nineveh, and and he's given them a message, but I would argue that he has not fully obeyed him. Now let's look at the Ninevites' response. The Ninevites repent. That's verses 3, 5 through 8, chapter 3, 5 through 8. Look back at chapter 3, verse 5. It says, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Believe me, this is a massive, massive and incredible, incredible, incredible response to Jonah's message. Like the pagan sailors in chapter 1, they believed God. It says they, they believe in God. Uh, Jonah actively, is actively trying to thwart God's plan, but everywhere he goes, pagans keep turning to God. Now, we should recognize the miraculous nature of these responses. As as amazing as this is, I believe that God did save them. I believe that it is salvation. Some some commentators believe that it's not, that it stops short of salvation because just a, a generation or two later, they're right back to their old ways. But I believe that God sovereignly saved these people who repented. Now, I believe, I would also say that, that Jesus affirmed their salvation in Matthew 12, 41. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what they're saying is, is that, that 
Jonah preached to them, and they repented. The men of Nineveh repented, whereas the men who heard Jesus' preaching refused to do so. In the words of in the words of John MacArthur in the MacArthur Study Bible, it says the revival in Nineveh under Jonah's preaching was one of the most extraordinarily, extraordinary spiritual revivals the world has ever seen. Some have suggested that the repentance of the Ninevites stopped short of saving faith because the city reverted within one generation <coughs> to its pagan ways. From Jesus' words here, however, it is clear that the revival under Jonah represented authentic saving conversions. Only eternity will reveal how many souls from that one generation were swept into the kingdom as a result of the revival, end quote. This amazing response reminds me of Rahab, who believed in God and was saved. In her words in Joshua 2.11, she says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That, I believe, in Rahab was saving faith. I believe that, that the Ninevites, in like manner, uh, also turned to the Lord. Now look back at your text in Jonah 3, 5. It says, They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Again, this was nothing short of a miraculous response. And it reminds me, it reminds me of Joel's words in response to the famine in lo, in the, of the locust, but caused by the locust plague. Uh, listen to Joel. Joel 1.14. This is the, in Joel 1, we saw this in the first sermon of the series. Uh, there was a famine caused by the locust plague, and Joel says, Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. So, so amazingly, this wicked, wicked city of, of Nineveh has responded in similar fashion to the news of Yahweh's impending judgment on them. Now, look back at your text in, in Jonah 3, 6-8. It says, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. So what we have here, beloved, is that the, the least to the greatest has repented before God. The king has even decreed that each person turn from his wicked way and uh, from the violence which is in his hands. You see, the, the Ninevites were notorious for their violence and evil which makes this even a, 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 even a greater miracle, if you will. A century later, Nahum would describe, uh, describe Nineveh as a bloody city that is completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. One can assume from Jonah 1-2 where it says that their evil had reached the, the Lord. Uh, one can assume that Nineveh of Jonah's time was very similar. This was a wicked, wicked city, a city that deserved God's judgment. 
Now, you should be asking yourself, what prompted this amazing response? Well, to this, the answer to this question, I believe, will help us understand the sign of Jonah. I believe it influenced their repentance. Uh, Jonah had been swallowed by the fish and remained there for three days and three nights before being regurgitated onto dry land. Obviously, God's arrangement for Jonah to be uh, swallowed by the fish and then the fact that he survived in that fashion were miraculous events. That God could command the fish to vomit Jonah onto the beach was miraculous as well. His time in the fish, though, most likely had great effect on his physical appearance. The, The stomach acid may have bleached him white, which would have drawn great attention to his prior travails. The fact that he was in the fish, in the belly of the fish, uh, would have caused him potentially to look a certain way that definitely would have drawn attention. In the words of Eugene Merrill, a commentator on Jonah, uh, the confinement in the stomach of the fish with its attendant and obvious deleterious effects would surely make him the object of utmost curiosity, end quote. His appearance may have drawn attention, but as Merrill goes on to point out, we cannot rule out the the possibility of divinely appointed witnesses who not only saw the regurgitation, but bore testimony to it in Nineveh and all along the way. Now, after the fish released Jonah, Jonah traveled to Nineveh. Now, as uh, during this time, he no doubt attracted a ton of attention. So it's very probable that word of of what happened had reached Nineveh by the time Jonah makes his appearance at the edge of the city to begin to preach his his sermon, if you will. But this, this doesn't fully explain the profound nature of the city's response. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, we've referred to it several times, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah. Now, again, Eugene Merrill is helpful. He defines a sign as a miraculous act produced to authenticate its agent and to induce faith in God on the part of the observer. Now make sure I get that right. Get that, did you understand it? A sign is a miraculous act produced to authenticate its agent and to induce faith in God on the part of the observer. So according to this definition, Jesus confirms the miraculous nature of Jonah's saga in the fish. Again, according to Eugene Merrill, we must recognize that in some manner, Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Plausible source, end quote. So when Jonah presented himself in the city, he became a sign to the Ninevites. And that miraculous sign authenticated him and induced belief in the inhabitants of the city. Now, I believe that history helps us understand why this happened. Nineveh believed in a fish goddess goddess named Nanshi. The name of the city actually may be translated fish town. Uh, Merrill again states that Assyrian tradition held that Assyria's arts and sciences were brought brought from the Persian Gulf by a half-fish, half-man deity, end quote. So Jonah has been swallowed and transported and deposited by this great fish. This great fish uh, obeyed Yahweh's commands. Therefore, Jonah's God, Yahweh, is much greater than their gods. Do you understand the point? 
As such, as such, repentance is the only plausible response to Jonah and his message of looming disaster. Again, we see the hand of God fully engaged in this situation. You see, nothing, not even Jonah's uh, fleeing to the, to the ocean and going to the bottom of the ocean, nothing can thwart God's purpose and plans. You see, our vain attempts to run from God or to change His will by our actions will never, ever do so. And friends, you can move entirely around the globe to escape God. He will always be there. If you are His, you will always find yourself in His grip. I'm reminded of Saul of Tarsus who tried to wipe out the church. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You see, Paul's vain efforts, despite Paul's vain efforts, Jesus miraculously saved him. And instead of tearing down the church, instead of destroying the church, he used him to build his church. Back in Jonah 3, verse 9, the king recognizes the possibilities. Look at your text in verse 9. Friends, this is an amazing statement. He says this, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. That's an amazing statement, but it connects back to Joel chapter 2. We saw Joel chapter 2 in the first sermon. You can turn there if you'd like in Joel 2. You may recall that Joel in that, in that chapter describes what, what is called the day of the Lord. And Joel 2, 1 and 2 says in part, For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And he goes on in verse 11, The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? You see, Jonah is describing a future day of the Lord, which I would argue is still future, in which God will judge the world. Yet, God gives Israel the opportunity to repent. Look at Joel 2.12, if you are there, you can just listen if you're not. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Then in Joel 2.13, he says this, and rend your heart and not your garments, now return to the Lord your God. Then he says, For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, and relenting of evil. This connects back to Exodus 34, 6, where God relented concerning Israel's sin with the golden calf. We looked at that again in the first sermon. Now, Joel 2, 14. Joel 2, 14. That's what Joel says, or what the people say. Who knows? whether he will, re- will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. These are the same words, who knows whether he will turn and relent, are the same words used by the king of Nineveh back in Jonah 3.9. Therefore, the pagan Ninevites, the Gentile Ninevites, reacted the same way as the people of Israel in Joel with one difference. The Ninevites, back in Joel, it is about blessing. Israel desires to be blessed by God, so they say, who knows whether he will will not turn, 
whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Nineveh wanted to survive God's wrath. Israel wanted his blessings. But uh, the the truth is, is both say, who knows whether he will not return or turn and relent. Same response. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 10, back in Jonah. Back in Jonah. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Ultimately, God relents. He ultimately relents with the Ninevites, the same as he did with Israel back in Exodus 32, which again we saw in the first sermon. But there's one problem here. The question is, does God change his mind? Now, I would argue that God did exactly what he intended to do from the very beginning. I would argue that he gave, especially in Joel 2, or Jonah 2, I, I would, or Jonah 3, I would argue that he gave Jonah the message, repent, repent. I would argue that he hasn't changed his mind. It may look like it from a human perspective, but his plan has not changed from the very beginning. Jonah did exactly what God intended him to do. The Ninevites did exactly what God intended them to do so that he would get all the glory. And we can affirm, we can affirm though, that God is unchanging because his decree does not change. This is true even when it seems like he has changed from our perspective. Let me just say it this way. God's plan was always to save the pagan sailors and the Ninevites from the very beginning. The truth is, God's redemptive plan has always included the Gentiles. Last week I told you, Yahweh is the God who called Jonah to go to Nineveh, who created the storm, who compelled the captain to wake Jonah, to, who caused the lot to fall on Jonah, who constrained the sailors to cast Jonah into the sea, who calmed the sea, who commanded the great fish, and who chose to save Jonah. Now we see that he is the God who chooses to save wicked people, including the Ninevites. And he did this through Jonah's preaching. Yet Jonah couldn't stand it. He hated it. Next time we will see Jonah's great anger. Look at, in the meantime, look at verse 4. Or sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. You see, Jonah hates the fact that God showed mercy toward the Ninevites, the Gentiles. And next time... Next time we will see that this points toward the church, which, by the way, will include both Jews and Gentiles. We pray to close this sermon, and then we're going to have a time of communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. As we look forward to this time of observing the Lord's table, Father, I pray that we will see, we do see, your sovereign hand in saving the Ninevites, a wicked, wicked people who deserve your wrath. But Lord, let us not fall for the untruth that we are any less 
deserving of your wrath, but you've shown mercy on us. Father, may we understand this truth and understand as we preach the gospel to the lost that you are a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. In Christ's name, amen.